Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoy Street Podcast, my go-to source for the latest news and insight on state and local government in Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing good, Kevin. How are you? Doing very well. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the MAKO Winter Conference, some conference chatter. We'll get into some tax talk, and then we will talk fiscal policy. Michael, let's first talk about the MAKO Winter Conference. Obviously, that just wrapped up in Cambridge. I thought it was a great event. Still recovering a little bit. There's a lot of work that goes into it, but it was fantastic. Definitely. I mean, I mean, this is for an association that's member-driven like ours. This is some, to some degree, this is our chance to show value back to our members. So elected officials and decision makers from every county get together. And this is it's a little bit of everything. It's it's some sort of academic stuff and a lot of best practices, right. a lot of collegiality, a lot of like random conversations in the hallway where suddenly you're like, wait, hold on. can I get your card? Because I want to hear more about that. Right. I love those random sorts of things. But yeah, you flip through the program for this event and it's just page after page of, oh, my county's in the middle of this. I got to go to that. You know, people circle in sessions they want to attend. One of the frustrations we get from people is well, there's five things going on in this window and I want to be at three of them. How do I pick? Right. How do how am I supposed to decide? So we, we, we split up three county commissioners. We cover these three different topics because they're all relevant to us. Right. And that's, that, that's great feedback for us. And the, the vibe at, at the, the Hyatt down in, in Dorchester County was the vibe was great. Um, the hallways were full. The con- yeah, the conference sessions were really full. It was a really good event for us. Yeah, and of course, we need to give a plug. We did do a live recording of the podcast with Arthur Scott from the National Association of Counties and Joanne Hovis from CTC Technologies. We got into a recurring theme on this podcast, Michael, new technology driving new policy. We talked about the ever-shrinking island of cable television, but that also got into 5G and small cells. Yeah, and it was a great conversation. Yeah, we labeled it as, as cable TV trying to mention the sort of dinosaur in the telecom world. Right. And but the, you know, the conversation was really about the information age and how delivery and content are both changing so rapidly. And we're sitting around with state laws and plenty of local laws that have been on the books since the 70s and 80s and 90s. And basically, you know, we thought we knew what cable TV meant and was back in 1985 when lots of places basically built the model of having a local franchise agreement and so forth. But I mean, delivery of information and connectivity and entertainment is so different now than it was then. That model is on its way to, to being obsolete. So I, I don't know. It's, it's a good conversation. If you missed last week's podcast, run it down. Technology has always been a strong suit for us and for our listeners. We always get good feedback on technology-related topics. And I think this was a good one. The guests really powered that conversation for us a lot. They absolutely did. And, Michael, of course, one of the biggest topics at Winter Conference and the focus of a huge general session, which literally was standing room only, and right. it's a huge room to begin with, 
was the Kerwin Commission. Sure. So school funding, no surprise, right? I mean, as you know, it's been occupying lots of our time on the podcast, lots of our time as staff to county governments as we try and keep our members informed and abreast of all these conversations and technical groups and so forth going on. We have another one scheduled for later today. Right, I mean, it's just right. it's just one after another. But this is this is an issue of that magnitude. For good reason. Right. So if we didn't have a big focus on school funding. People would be saying, well, where, where, where's the Kerwin session? Because that's the number one and number two thing on my mind. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this popped up big general session with, with central stakeholders. But then also we had a, you know, a meeting of the large county coalition. They wanted to talk about school funding and how do you get from here to there. Right. Rural counties, I dropped in. Heads turn around. They say, "Hey, can you get up to the front of the room and start talking about school funding stuff? Because we got some questions in the hallways and the elevators. Yeah, it, was, it was everywhere. Right. So, no, I mean, no surprise. And that's like as it should be. I think that's and it wasn't. Yeah, you know, it wasn't a hundred percent apprehension or panic. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's okay. How does this work? And where are we going to be in a couple of years? And what does this mean to my budget? You know, in you know for the rest of this term or into next term. I mean, I mean the nuts and bolts stuff that county governments you know are are being asked to pick up. So I think that's all fair. Of course, we also had budgeting sessions, a session on school construction, vaping, obviously mm-hmm. a hot topic. We've talked yeah. about that. Michael, your book club is really starting to take off. I think. Yeah, you know, that's good. How, how did that go? It was a it was, it was a good thing. I mean, we, we, we get a, you know, a couple dozen people in a room for an hour, talk through good government principles, and you know, there's always takeaways. I love that after the session was over, people are like, I'm not going to the popcorn break or the chocolate break or whatever the next thing on the agenda was. I'm staying right here because I have more things I want to say. And there was just this whole spontaneous, we could have gone for three hours easily. Man, if you beat out the popcorn break, right. the chocolate break, <laughs> right. you must have had some good conversation something going right. on. Yeah. yeah. That's good. And of course, you know, Vision Zero, we, uh, we focus roadway a lot on safety, roadway right, yeah. safety, a lot on the environment, clean energy, of course, the census, emergency services, cannabis, naloxone training, Just which one thing after, one another, thing after the right, other. Right. I mean, the, the conversations about the census in, in multiple places, obviously, it's timely. Mm-hmm. If you're a 10 year kind of person, you, know, you can do the math. We're at the end of 2019. So 2020 is the census year for the process Coming to happen. Coming up quickly, right. So, so every county has an effort underway, but the content at this conference, I felt like was a layer deeper rather than just the mechanics of starting your effort. It was a little deeper along, you know, targeting your populations that you anticipate mm-hmm. will be harder to reach. And how do you, how do you, you know, get the right key for that lock? Um, you know, council member Danny Tavares, uh, spoke in a couple different forms at this conference and you could see the whole room scribbling notes, listening to, um, to what she's been doing and, and, you know, with the nonprofit community in Prince George's County saying, we know there are places that are tough to reach. Let's make a special effort because, you know, every person deserves to be counted. And of course, part of that is those trusted community partners figuring Mm -hmm. out who the community trusts and is going to listen to. She focused a lot on that and connecting the dots to we need to make sure everyone's counted because there's a lot of federal funding at stake. And of course, when we have big spending obligations on the horizon, you know, we need to make sure that we're getting our fair share. And of course, Michael, you know, we had 
a closing session, which was the General Assembly forecast. That's always popular. Mm-hmm. What, what was your take there? I think there were some yeah. specific uh, items that I took away from it. Well, I mean, first of all, our, our event is always situated just you know a few weeks before the legislative session opens up. Uh, it, it, it's good to have leaders from both parties and both chambers and from the administration who are all able to give you some perspective on what they're thinking, what they're anticipating. Everybody's got something to say about school funding. And we know that's going to be a big topic in the room, but it's not the only issue. Um, having you know the Senate Minority Whip uh, Steve Hershey, um, you know, kind of walk through Mako's initiatives and give some thought about where they fit into legislative thinking for this year. I think there's value in that. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, hats off to Delegate Lutke. Uh, he's he's a member of the Kerwin Commission and very much invested in the education spending plan. He stands up in front of a room of county officials, he knows there's some county people who have apprehension or Mm -hmm. concern about that plan. And rather than staying on message and doing the the completely easy thing, which is this is important, you know, buck up. Instead, he says, I think we have some work to do Mm -hmm. because I'm worried about what this is going to mean for some jurisdictions. And then he singles out, he doesn't single out Montgomery, who he represents. He doesn't single out another sort of deep blue jurisdiction that in theory, if you're in the House of Delegates leadership, that might be what you're thinking about. You would think. He says, I'm worried about Caroline County. That's yeah. a poor jurisdiction being asked to do a bunch more. And, you know, by the signs of it, they're making a commitment to education. And I'm worried about that being a rough spot in this plan. That's that that's value added for the people in the room. I mean, Caroline County is, I'm sure, delighted to hear that their message has gotten through to a Democratic leader high up. He's the majority leader of the House of Delegates and a key player on the Kerwin debate. Right. But at the same time, like, all right, you're being heard and and you know, you're on the radar. There's a lot to be said for that. I think a bunch of people noticed that as well. But I mean, to me, Having having that forum and you kind of look people in the eye, they they get used to seeing you, Kevin, on fiscal issues, right. and they see you know Natasha on on housing issues and on economic development stuff. Um, all the Mako staff is present and visible in Annapolis, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But being in a room where there's hundreds of county officials, and it's you know she's the one who's got to do the county budget. He's the one who just ran for election on this, and half of this room are running for election in a couple more years on how they're doing, that's a different exchange than they have with us as association staff. I agree. Much more personal. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's, anyway, there's there's value to us and I think value to those policymakers in being in that room, fielding those questions. But also, as you make comments to a group like that, you're thinking those things through. That's, that's good muscle memory. Yeah. I mean, of course, lots of great exhibitors and that provides a great opportunity for our elected officials, our county professional staff to learn about cost-saving products services and bring that back home. Right. So, I mean, you 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 bring a gaggle of county people to to a conference for a couple of days. If you come back with one idea about, you know, we ought to be doing this differently, where our, our resurfacing plan isn't up to speed and this company might be able to save us scads of money on doing that, you, you, you can end up paying for the event 10 times over with one good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, over the last few years, we've unfolded solution showcases, which are, you know, presentations made by partners and supporters who are outside of county government, but they're all trying to talk about either a current issue or an approach that your, your jurisdiction might not have heard of, uh, 
people go to those events. They they know that that to some degree these might be sales pitches. But hey, I mean, if I could come away with a good idea, you know, there's there's an awful lot of value back home for that. And speaking of good ideas, I mean, overall, Michael, I think this conference and every conference, it's a great opportunity for all of our members to collaborate with one another, learn best practices, and again, take those back home, learn about what this county's doing or that county's doing, and saying, hey, how can we do that in my county? Because it seems to really be working well there. And yeah. I think I think we can do it. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, uh, ditto to all that. And I, I think one thing that strikes me is as we talk about technology and in the information age and so forth, there's tons of people out there who are doing webinars and, and you know, podcasts and other things like that, which are less personal. I mean, to be honest, mm-hmm, right? So mm-hmm. you, you go to a webinar and you hear someone talk about a thing and that's that's fine. But what you miss there is the interaction before, maybe the detail question and answer. And then you walk up to the front of the stage and you get the person for six minutes afterwards and you walk through. Now, wait, hold on. I'm not so sure. Like, I know you're talking about stormwater, but actually my bigger problem is, you know, we've got a combined sewer overflow system. And is, is this going gonna to help my solve our problem up and Allegheny County, right? Totally different vibe to be able to you know grab a person for ten minutes one to one, or then you stand in the lunch line, you realize the person sat next to you in that last session, and you get to talking further, and the, and someone says, well, you know what? They didn't even bring up what we're doing in our county. We've done it this different way, and if I had been up there, I might have been able to talk for ten minutes about that. You're having a whole extra layer of value being someplace in person. Um, Technology is great and being able to travel around the world by Skype and by video cast and so forth is nice. But being side by side with somebody at the coffee line, there's value in that, too. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of the conference, Michael, one of the big topics that was gaining attention during the conference and since is an emerging conversation about the county income tax. And, you know, we've talked about that currently it's set by state law, one flat rate that applies to all taxable income, regardless of income tax level. But Michael, at the conference, some county officials have argued that flexibility to create brackets like the income tax systems, you know, that at the state and the federal level would be a reasonable option to grant county government. So we're talking about progressivity here or just, you know, different taxation rates, brackets for different wage earners right. like we have at the state and federal level. And, and almost every level of income taxes, almost everywhere that it's applied, you see that formal income tax structures are done by way of brackets. And I mean, to step back a moment, um, you know, Tax policy is, in, in the broad sense, it's a matter of how do you pay for public services and what's the appropriate share for different people to contribute. And, I mean, there's there are matters, questions and matters of political philosophy here. And I think all that's fair mm-hmm. to say to what extent do you say, you know, everybody benefits the same amount from public services uh, and should pay the same amount? You know, there's always these, you know, analogies of people going to a pizza shop or whatever and, and that sort of thing. Public services are different than pizzas mm-hmm. in a lot of regards. And, you know, who benefits from an orderly society where we have order in the streets and public services and we incarcerate dangerous people. We uh, enforce private contracts through the court system and other things like who benefits from that sort of thing. That's probably a disproportionate sort of thing. Even Mm -hmm. if you're even beyond just who gets money from, from distributional programs and so forth, this stuff is subtle. Public policy is tricky. This isn't an area where Mako's taken a position that one thing is better than another, but 
Number one, income tax systems, generally speaking, are the way to promote progressivity in your revenue structure. Right. Um, to the extent that, that governments rely on things like sales taxes, counties re- re- rely very heavily on property taxes. Both of those, we know the incidence of those taxes are heavier on relatively poor people. Right. So, so Maryland made a conscious decision years ago to say, let's take some burden off the property tax. Let's grant counties the ability to do an income tax. And in part, the theory was this is a way for things to be closer to a progressive tax structure than you would get with property taxes as the main driver for local government. And you look around at other states, we're the only state where the counties have uh, basically an income tax as a principal revenue source for every county. Right, right. We are unique in that regard. And of course, you know, we've mentioned the state and the federal taxation structures. They do have that progressivity. But in order to create this local flexibility, you know, Michael, you'd have to have state law be changed. Anne Arundel County Executive Stuart Pittman has indicated that he intends to pursue such an effort in 2020. He's begun working with other potentially interested jurisdictions. But I guess, first of all, why don't we have progressivity at the local level? We have a local income tax. Why aren't we like the state when it comes to those brackets? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing to be clear about is that this is not that 24 counties have all individually decided we want to have a single rate flat tax. Right. What this is is in this is in state law, and the the, the story goes back years and years. Of course, I was around because I've been here forever. But um, this goes back a number of years, and the county taxes. Some people will, will remember that the counties used to have what we call the piggyback income tax, right. which was a a percent of state tax liability. That link got severed and the counties sort of decoupled from the state for a variety of policy reasons. But the simplest way to do that was to assign each county a single rate. It makes it easier for people to understand rate comparability and so forth. So um, we have a lot of counties that are at the maximum state income tax rate. The state rate for their county taxes is 3.2%. That applies to all of your taxable income. Mm-hmm. Um, others have rates that are 2.8 or 2.6 or something along those lines. And, and it's sort of apples to apples. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's missing there is the ability to have something richer as tax policy at the local level so that a person with a million dollars of income is paying still 3.2% on that last dollar of income, right. just like her first dollar of income. And that is peculiar for income taxes because at the federal level, at the state level, we generally speaking have some sort of a, of a curve and you go to higher rates. So the more you make, so, the, the, you know, yeah. that, that rate increases with the amount of money that you're making, those brackets increase as right, you go up. Right. And, and it's, it's not, I mean, sometimes people misunderstand the idea of tax brackets that once you move into a, into a higher bracket, that means you're paying a higher rate on all your dollars. Right. No, no. You still pay the low rate, the lower rate on your first X dollars up until the start, the second bracket starts, et cetera. And that's how every tax system, tax system works. So, um, so what it would take here is for the state to move past basically simplicity. So really, so you're saying it was a simple thing to do when the counties decoupled. Yeah. And it was also a case of the state actually in state law set the default 
tax rate for each county right. for each year of a, of a series of state changes. And so rather than that becoming this giant impenetrable matrix of different things, it was pretty easy to say, unless you do anything, your rate is going to be 2.66%. And that's what we've calculated is going to bring in the same revenue for your county. So live with that. If you want to adjust it, fine, but otherwise it's just going to turn into that. That was easy for taxpayers to understand, easy for the state to administer. And at the time, I think it served everybody's needs okay. Mm-hmm. Um, things are more sophisticated now. The share of taxpayers who use software for tax preparation has gone from being a novelty to being the overwhelming share of tax preparation is done using some some degree of software. Sure, TurboTax, well, what have yeah, you. Yeah, all those right? sorts of things. Some of them are free. Some of them cost a little bit of money. But I mean, there's, you know, there's sort of a price war with these these various softwares, but they can all handle um, the idea of, okay, here's a different structure in one county than another. So I don't know, this, this issue I think is reasonable to be on the table. For MAKO, if we've got jurisdictions saying we want to be able to manage our revenue structure differently than we can, if they're saying they want county flexibility, that's that's Bread our and butter. That, that's us, right? So so Mako is interested in a topic like this because of local flexibility. Not necessarily that we say, you know, the structure we have now is bad policy. It's just we would like to have counties have the option to do things their own way and serve their local needs. An option is the key word there, yeah. right? This would not be any sort of a mandate. This would be if you want to do it, you can do it. That's local flexibility. That's local autonomy. And that's what we're all about. So I, I I don't think that MAKO would have an appetite for a bill that would force every county to adopt some newer structure. I mean, I I could be wrong about that, but I don't think that's what MAKO would have an appetite for. I think us as the statewide association, we are on on comfortable grounds assuming that if a bill comes in like we're hearing about Mm -hmm. that would say, let each county decide. And if a handful of counties want to go to a series of brackets, if they want to do something that's revenue neutral and do a tax cut on the low end and an increase on the higher end or whatever, then, okay, that should be a local decision. And we need the state to grant that local flexibility. And that goes with every issue. I mean, as soon as you say, let counties decide, I think you can automatically right. say, okay, yeah, we're, we're planning, on board with that. I mean, that. with planning and zoning, with environmental issues, with, you know, virtually everything, that's where MAKO comes down in Annapolis saying, we're, 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 we're big kids. We can, we, we can put on our own pants and we can take our own, we can take the heat for our own local decisions. So that, that's fine. Right. Accountability. <laughs> to our residents, local flexibility. Now, Michael, some will say, of course, getting back to Kerwin, this is all about paying for Kerwin. Is that fair to say? I mean, this proposal, of course, we haven't seen a bill. Certain people are in talks about doing something like this. Is it fair to say that this would be all about paying for Kerwin? I mean, okay, so I don't think you can say there's no connection at all. Do we have counties who are thinking about their local revenue structure as they look at the Kerwin roadmap? And for many counties, they are seeing that they may need to find a healthier and stronger local contribution to schools. If this passes in something like its current form, we've got a bunch of counties who are looking at 2030 and saying, 
I don't know how I get from here to there. Maybe my only tool seems to be the property tax, and I'm not wild about doing that. Right, it's more regressive. So, so it's possible that that that's part of what spurs this conversation, but I I don't think that's the only thing. I don't think this is a, simply a matter of this bill has to pass because it's a tool for Kerwin. Right. I think it's closer to Kerwin has everybody thinking about revenue structures, and as we do so. It sticks out like a sore thumb. We've got no flexibility here. This mm-hmm. is really weird to have an income tax structure that everybody pays, but everybody pays precisely the same rate. That's an anomaly with income taxes. So stay tuned there. We could see legislation on this topic. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll get into revenue projections, all that more after the break. This is John Frenet with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionanapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, yesterday, as we record here on Thursday, December 12th, the Board of Revenue Estimates raised their fiscal year 20 revenue projections, albeit very slightly. Just a smidge. And as a reminder, Michael, this is a three-member panel, which includes Comptroller Francho, State Treasurer Cop, Secretary of DBM, David Brinkley. They're responsible for estimating state revenues to assist with managing the state's budget. This is the number the governor is going to get when he starts to put his budget together. Right. I mean, so we have a process in Maryland where it's... It's a sort of a collaborative effort across these three different offices to decide what are the numbers we're going to balance to, right? And that, I mean, it, it's it's a best practice that Maryland embraces that not every state does. There are some places that it just ends up being the executive branch tells everybody, here are our official revenue guesses, and we're going to build our budget based on go. that, right? right? So having this be a sort of multi-agency, multidisciplinary approach, the, the economy Economists and the staff from legislative services are also involved in this process. They don't have a vote on this board, but there's sort of a panel of people who contribute to this year long. Mm -hmm. So it's a collaborative thing that serves us pretty well. Um, And this is the time of year that an official adjustment is made. Uh, They usually convene again sort of in early March with more data, and that'll be what we balance the final year's budget to. But for now, this is what we're working with. So this is kind of a big day for fiscal people to think about the year ahead. And especially if these numbers change a lot, Mm -hmm. then suddenly that might change the conversation. This being a relatively small change, it's to the good. And that's, that mean, you know, you'd rather have that than the reverse. Right. But I mean, this isn't, this isn't an earth moving kind of thing. So they raised their estimate by 26.4 million.
billion. And when you put that into perspective with revenues of 18.7 billion, it's a small number. One or two tenths of a yeah, percent. Very small. Yeah. But Michael, the board also bumped up their September projection for fiscal year 21 by $115 million. So there's a new total there of 19.2 billion in 21. And that, of course, is in state revenue. So that's a little bit more significant when you start talking about $100 million, $115 million, that starts to get people's attention more than $26 million for fiscal 20. Yeah, I, th- I think th- I think that's fair. So, so I mean, these aren't gigantic numbers. I mean, 100 and, you know, $115 million, that's it. I mean, that, that number sounds really big compared to the stuff we talk around the kitchen table when we're like, you know, do we cut the cable bill and, you know, that sort of stuff. We're trying to save $40 a month. $150 million sounds like a huge amount of money, but I tend to describe the you know the state budgeting process. If the general fund budget is close to $20 billion, then like the unit of currency is really $100 million. Mm-hmm. A problem of $20 or $40 million in the state budget basically rounds to a zero. So $115 million to the good for the coming year softens up a, pro- up a problem. But we knew that the state was coming in with a structural problem in the hundreds of millions. This softens that, but it doesn't wipe things out. This still shapes up as a somewhat challenging year coming up. Right. And and this write-up has been driven by better than expected wage growth and anticipated increases in revenue from capital gains. And Michael, speaking of capital gains, Maryland's chief economist, Andy Schaffel, who, you know, he's just a, a fantastic fiscal mind. He urged lawmakers to adhere to the revenue volatility cap. And I think, you know, us talking taxes, we should get into that a little bit. Well, it's, it's a, it's a, Peculiar thing to come up in the month of December, before the legislature has convened, before we've seen the governor's budget, before we have any idea about like a budget reconciliation bill and what's in it and so forth. It's an interesting item to already be highlighted here. So I think it is worth getting into. They're highlighting it as, you know, maybe a preview of a debate yet to come. Right. I'd be inclined to agree with that. So let's break that down for a second. It's worth some attention. Yeah. So this all really has to do with capital gains. And when we talk about the revenue volatility cap, it doesn't get much attention. But again, them mentioning it yesterday, I think probably caused a lot of people to get on the Google machine and yeah, say, what the right. heck is this? Right. So, right. And, and I mean, capital gains is is sort of the stand in for for income that's coming from sources other than wages. Right. So for most of us working slobs like us, we we get a paycheck every couple of weeks from an employer and in each paycheck a certain amount of taxes are withheld and the comptroller can kind of keep an eye on what's going on with income taxes mostly by looking at withholdings. Right. So something happens, you know, somebody somebody gets laid off from a factory and the whole third shift is laid off and they're no longer earning, then the withholdings will show that pretty quickly. And the comptroller realizes, okay, the wages aren't there. The taxes aren't being generated. We kind of know what's going on. You have another class of income that's subject to taxes where people do things like estimated taxes. If you're if you're an entrepreneur, you're in business for yourself, or you're not doing with, in conventional withholding through a paycheck, you might make estimated payments saying, I think by the end of the year, I'm going to have earned this amount. And so 
I'll make a quarterly payment. Okay, the comptroller can track that sort of stuff too. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that's missing there is capital gains. If you have an investment and it has appreciated, you put money in the stock market and you made money, you bought a piece of real estate and it's gone, it's now more valuable and you're about to sell it. Once you realize a gain, that triggers taxable income. There's complicated rules about, you know, offsetting losses against your gains and so forth. What we know is capital gains move around a bunch. They're extremely volatile, right? right? And that's because it's extremely difficult to predict taxpayer behavior. You typically control when you realize a gain, when you decide to hold on to that investment. So it's very hard to predict when you're going to sell that asset and realize the gain. Right. And even if you're in the revenue forecasting business and you look at the stock market and you say, oh, well, this has been a big year and things, the stock market is generally up for this calendar year or for this fiscal year, you still aren't certain, are taxpayers going to cash out their gains? Are they going to let them ride? Are they responding to other decisions? And so, like, it's it's a bit of a guessing game, and we all know it. Even the economists would confess, you know, I can try and give you a good forecast on wages, but what's going to happen with these, these unearned income items? It's much more of a guess, and sometimes we're going to just exceed our estimates because we missed. Mm-hmm. What do you do when you exceed your estimates because of the fluky stuff? And That's what this is really about. For you know, for the fiscal year that we've closed out, for the fiscal year that we're in, yeah. and for the next year, you have to make a guess. Mm-hmm. And you look at the stock market. You look at what's happening in the real estate market. You're seeing appreciation there. So the sensible thing is you write up your guesses and say, maybe better than we thought. Right. And I mean, back in 2012, for example, capital gains income was up 41% over 2011. <laughs> that was a year where the stock market did very well. But again, you're right, we're guessing. We don't know what this is going to be. So the other issue here, Michael, is that capital gains income is notable for being highly concentrated among our high income tax earners. So a relatively small group of taxpayers can really cause these huge swings in capital gains income for the state over a given year. The top 1% of Maryland tax returns generally account for around 70 to 75% of capital gains income. So you're trying to figure out what this small group of people are going to do. And anything that they do differently than you projected can cause massive swings in, in revenue. Right. So all it takes is one heavy, heavy hitter to have some decision that might have nothing to do with the economy. It might be a family estate planning issue or just a a corporate strategy change and say, you know what, I'm going to just liquidate a bunch of real estate for some other reason, has nothing to do with anything. And then suddenly, Maryland says, what's going on with our capital gains? Mm -hmm. We have a big number this year. That, That actually happens. Right. So obviously, this is a volatile revenue source. This whole idea of the revenue volatility cap is to insulate the state from these swings, which can be particularly painful during recession, and also to avoid building unsustainable ongoing spending into budgets during economic booms, right? This is written into law. This isn't like a piece of paper policy. This was passed as a bill with all the stakeholders supporting this framework. Mm -hmm. It's been in law for two or three years. Two or three years ago, they passed it. Um, Last year was the first year it kind of popped up. But this isn't just like a piece of paper. This is actually state law. It's in law. So in order to reduce the reliance on this income source, the revenue volatility cap says that for the purpose of the general fund, non-withholding income, so again, mostly talking about capital gains here, can only increase 2% above a 10-year rolling average. 
any revenues above that 2% cap must be put in rainy day fund. And then if the rainy day funds at 10%, the money's transferred into a special account and that money can only be used for capital expenditures. One so pay go one, yeah. one time, which is really smart in my opinion. Well, that's the, I mean, so the, the general idea here is if, if it looks like your excess in revenues is because of fluky stuff, let's not Build that, build that into in, a right. foundation and make permanent commitments based on those numbers. And then next year we say, well, where's the crazy capital gains number so we can continue to pay these employees or continue this program we started? Instead, you say, let's put some of this money in the sock. And if the sock is full, then we can make some one-time commitments. But okay, we'll, we'll do pay go, pay as you go capital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's build a thing. Okay. We got $60 million. Let's build a $60 million building with cash as opposed to making a commitment to a $60 million program that needs another 62 next year. Right. And as you said, this is a law, but we know that the General Assembly can amend laws. They can move things around when they need to. So as you mentioned, this was passed into law a few years ago. Fiscal 20 was the first year that it was going, you know, it's set to take effect and it was phased in, right? So it's 0.5% is the cap in 20, 1% in 21, 2% in 22, and then 2% in perpetuity. The General Assembly for the fiscal 20 budget amended that 0.5% number to 0.25. So I think that the, the, the combination that, you know, Andy Schaff was talking about with capital gains being up and projected to be up and what the General Assembly did last year in reducing that cap has him concerned and they're concerned this could be a conversation that needs to be had when we start diving into the budget for fiscal 21. So, so at the moment, we're writing up revenues in part thinking this is going to be a year when people are going to have capital gains and non-withholding income. Mm -hmm. So this may be one of those years where we're above the trend. If you're anticipating that, then the conversation in December saying, stick to your guns. We, we, we had a plan for what to do with volatility and it doesn't involve spending the money right away. Saying this in December seems to be pointing toward this looks like an issue that's coming to a head during the 2020 session mm-hmm. as we're sorting out the FY21 budget. Right. So you have to think that this fits into the larger fiscal picture. And so let's try and connect the dots a little bit. We have a new revenue forecast. We've got some forward-looking thoughts about sticking to a multi-year plan. So how does all this come together and connect for the budget that we're going to see? The the governor's got to propose a budget. The legislature needs to turn this into a a fiscal package, um, maybe including reconciliation legislation and Mm -hmm. so forth. All that stuff needs to happen by April. So how does this fit into that picture? Well, first of all, we also need to point out that, you know, the threat of a recession, the potential for another federal government shutdown, and of course, you know, political chaos in Washington, all could contribute to, you know, the budget being severely hampered because your revenues are going to be affected there. You know, we heard the treasurer echo that yesterday. We heard the comptroller talking about that, urging fiscal restraint. We know that inflation has been persistently low. Secretary Brinkley mentioned that revenue growth is barely keeping pace with inflation. So all of that can play into the 21 budget and budgets moving forward. But when we talk about specifically (laughs) fiscal 21, you know, we can get into that, too. So it it sounds like you were in the room for the the perfect storm session with our county finance and budget officers Mm, at the winter conference uh, because we had a session on that at the summer conference. We decided to continue the theme at the winter conference. But all this like 
you know, soft footing for our fiscal projections is like what county people are thinking about and what the state leaders are thinking about as well, all contributing to the, the picture we're looking at for the year ahead. Of course. And, you know, when we talk about the general fund forecast and the budget for fiscal 21, we know that, you know, we've been talking about in fiscal 21, the state has a big budget problem, about $900 million in the hole. They had a deficit. They were looking at $900 million. That, that was That was if, if you just put everything on autopilot. Right. I like to abbreviate it a little bit that way, but sort of a baseline forecast, if all the programs continue getting funded at their levels with you project what ordinarily happens with state agency needs, you project caseloads for things like Medicaid, you, you look at your school funding formulas mm-hmm. and so forth, the various things that mandate funding, you make some regular assumptions about what's going to happen with our revenue structure, you, you run a tape on the vanilla forecast, where are we going to be at on June 30th at the end of next fiscal year, and it's a red number in the eight or nine hundred million. Right. And that's to the Department of Legislative Services. And of course, they use the data that they have. And as you said, they look at if things stay the way they are, this is where we're going to be. Last month, DLS revised its outlook for fiscal 21. And basically, Michael, they've they've said, look, the deficit's not going to be nearly as bad as we thought because of an influx of available cash. You know, there was a, a surplus in fiscal year 19, better revenues for fiscal 20. There are savings from the governor not releasing some of the funds for fiscal 20. Favorable spending trends, you know, larger bond premiums, uh, slower growth in education aid, Medicaid saving, et cetera. Now they're saying that fiscal 21 closing balance is negative 241 million. So a deficit of about 240 million as opposed to almost 900 million. That That's a big change sure. in the fiscal 21 outlook. Right. As, as, as far as how heavy is the lift going to be for the year ahead, that is a really big difference. 900 and 240 are two really different sounding numbers. 652 to, yeah. million to be exact is right. the difference. But that's, I mean, that's that's a move the needle change over the last several months. So, and it's, it's, it's lots of moving parts, right? I mean, part of what we've been building into our assumptions for years and years would, would be that interest rates are on their way up mm-hmm. and the cheap bond market, eventually the party's going to be over and we'll have to start paying three or four or five percent on our state bonds. Right. Nope. No, that's, that's not where we are. Um, you know, well, it looks like the the you know the the stock market and and the economy is going to continue to generate some of that non wage income. So mm-hmm. revenues okay. You make a tentative bump in your projections there. Wages seem to still be okay. You know, assuming we don't have a nosedive into a recession, there's a number of things that each of them contribute. Well, this is fifty or hundred to the good there, fifty or hundred to the good there. Suddenly, your problem of two forty. Okay, that's that's within the range that you start saying, yeah, maybe a handful of policy decisions and you and you can tackle that. Right. And, you know, DLS even says there are three ways that you could erase that deficit and actually make it a surplus. So this is this is the professional nonpartisan staff to the legislature. They don't work for the governor. They work for the legislature. And this is happening in a combination of places. But in part, this is before the Spending Affordability Committee, a legislative process that's trying to basically size up the budget picture for the year ahead. And they meet actually next week to make final decisions. But the three ways that you could turn it into a surplus, Michael, number one, Reduce the rainy day fund from 6% to 5%. Of course, that would probably get the attention of, you know, Andy Schaffel and the comptroller and the treasurer who are saying, put the money in a sock. Let's not right. reduce the rainy day fund. Let's actually add to it. But you could save $190 million, according to DLS, if you were to do that. 
mm-hmm. right? Then we know WMATA, you know, the metro system, you could fund that from the Transportation Trust Fund instead of the general fund, uh, which this governor likes to do. He, he likes to, do, you know, take that money from the general fund rather than the Transportation Trust Fund. There's a, there's a new thing, yes. the idea of the state making this extra commitment to the, the D.C. area metro system, but making it out of general funds is kind of a new twist. Mm-hmm. We've always had a consolidated Transportation Trust Fund that does everything. Now, if you do this, that takes pressure off the general fund, and that could largely solve your – I mean, you have to have a balance in the general fund. You know, as of June 30th every fiscal year, there's got to be a penny left in the fund. That's the state constitutional obligation. So that, that makes things better for the general fund, but it makes things trickier on the transportation side. That means you delay projects. That means you might not have the capacity to follow through on your commitment for highway user revenue. We don't like that. supports local roads and bridges. We're stakeholders in that. So it's not like that's just a, a magic wand and free money. That's just squeezing the balloon in one place, and now the pressure is in a different part of the balloon. Right, and this is all about the general fund. So that would, you know, that would make it, you know, 167 million more to the good. Right. And then the final and probably the most controversial option: no employee salary increases. So no state employee salary increases. The baseline here assumes three percent. If you didn't give anybody right. a salary increase, 124 million. All of a sudden, if you add those up, Michael, you have a 230 million dollar surplus. Surplus, which is about what the state likes to build as a bottom line at the end of a fiscal plan. So so this is the legislative staff sort of saying, you know, absent going through, the, you know, in, in the mechanics of the legislative session, they always go through every agency and they'll find, oh, we think you could save $4 million here and 800000 there and $11 million here and so forth. That's a process that's going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. But they're at least saying, hey, here's some broad brush things you could do to turn turn that frown upside down, right? A 200 and some million dollar problem could turn into you know, 200 and some million projected in the sock if you just click a few boxes and what the heck, you know, we just negotiated a raise for the state employees, but they don't need that. And, and by the way, you know, these are state employees who are offering those as potential policy recommendations. That's an interesting twist too. But, you know, you can shift some of this pressure onto the transportation fund. You can say, we don't need to have quite as much money in the reserves as we've been keeping. You do all those things. Your problem is basically solved. That doesn't mean that's the roadmap, but they're trying to say there are you know, options. we've got ways to do this. Mm-hmm. I think the message there is this does not have to be a cataclysmic year where we're going to be furloughing state employees for 11 unpaid days. Like this isn't that kind of setup where honestly, back in the spring when you were looking at a $900 million problem, maybe you were thinking this the 20 session was going to be that kind of year. It sounds like we've cooled off on that uh, you know, apocalyptic language. Right. So fiscal 21 may not be as bad as originally predicted, but certainly the road ahead is not easy, especially, you know, depending on how we we handle our education commitments, how we handle school construction, all of these things play in these massive commitments. But it seems like at least for fiscal 21, not as bad as originally predicted back in the spring, back in June, but much, much better uh, and some options on the table to make it a surplus and not have a problem at all. So so the, the revenue forecast 
being officially upgraded a click this week is one of several contributing factors that have turned what looked like a crisis budget into maybe a manageable budget, right? I mean, you know, coming in with a two or three hundred million dollar problem is still a thing, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's not a you know, Katie bar the door kind of everybody's on notice. Every state agency is being told, come up with a minus 4% budget proposal. This doesn't look like it's that environment. Probably a lot of things flat funded. We'll probably have to see a budget reconciliation bill this year. We know the administration is fond of saying some of the last in items should be the ones first out. We just decided to fund this. All right, let's flat fund it instead. Right. That might mean stretching out some formulas and other odds and ends and so forth. But you know, we, we know how that debate goes because that's a typical year over the last you know eight or ten in Annapolis. All right, so obviously a lot to keep track of there, and of course we will be doing that for you. Session is approaching. Get ready. Yeah, 71 degrees in Guam, not in Annapolis. Man, not in Annapolis for sure, but we'll leave it there for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and subscribe. That way you'll get our episodes sent directly to you. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and of course, keep up with the Conduit Street blog. But until next week, Kevin signing off for Michael, and we will talk to you soon.